The old pilot's playing tales. One of our aircraft is missing. I'm a bit of a fan of old black and white wartime movies. Classics like The Cruel Sea, The Dam Busters, 12 O'Clock High and One of Our Aircraft is Missing. The title of that last one brought to mind the continuing speculation that surrounds the fate of Malaysia Flight 370, the Boeing 777 that disappeared over the South China Sea en route from Kuala Lumpur to Beijing. Whilst that is fairly recent and well known to most of us, there are a few other fascinating stories to be found in the dusty drawers of history. Let's take, for example, the case of Begich and Boggs. They were aboard a Cessna 310 out of Anchorage, bound for Juneau in Alaska. The date was the 16th of October 1972, and they were on a political junket, since Nick Begich was a member of the U.S. House of Representatives from Alaska, and Hale Boggs was the House Majority Leader for the House of Representatives and a member of the Warren Commission. The only other passenger was Russell Brown, an aide. The aircraft was operated by Pan-Alaska Airways, but perhaps surprisingly, the pilot was only able to fly under visual flight rules, since he was the only pilot on board and the machine had no autopilot. Since the pilot was also the president of Pan-Alaska and the chief pilot, it seems that he was well qualified for the flight ahead, but the weather did not look conducive to a flight under visual conditions. Departing from Anchorage, they set course to follow the airway Victor 317 and contacted the flight service station for the latest weather information. The flight service station specialist confirmed that they had appropriate emergency gear and a locator beacon on board, and then passed the pilot the weather for Cordova, Yakuta, Sitka and Juneau, plus the pertinent area forecasts. Ahead of the small craft was the Chugach mountain range, and the conditions along that proposed flight were not appropriate for a flight under visual rules. Indeed, their route followed the Portage Pass, which led through the high ground and was forecast to be closed due to weather. After speaking to Anchorage Flight Service, nothing more was ever heard from the Cessna. On board the aircraft, there was supposed to be an extensive survival kit, including food for each person for two weeks, and also an emergency locator transmitter. Since the aircraft itself wasn't equipped with an ELT, the pilot was supposed to be carrying a portable emergency transmitter. The chief pilot's personal ELT was found after his aircraft was reported missing, in the cabin of another Pan-Alaska's aircraft at Fairbanks. When the aircraft became overdue for its arrival at Juneau, a search was initiated, and considering the importance of the passengers, it was thorough and extensive. Almost immediately, an airborne HC-130 Hercules was diverted from its mission to commence a search that, for its time, became one of the most extensive in aviation history. 
Search areas were established which covered thousands of square miles and were covered numerous times by aircraft of the U.S. Air Force, the U.S. Army, the U.S. Coast Guard, the Civil Air Patrol, as well as civil aircraft and helicopters. In addition, U.S. Coast Guard cutters, merchant marine and fishing vessels covered the Prince William Sound, the Gulf of Alaska and the Icy Straits area. Much of Portage Pass was also searched twice by ground personnel. Even after 39 days of intensive effort, neither the wreckage of the plane nor the pilots' and passengers' remains were ever found. The events surrounding the crash led to much speculation, suspicion and numerous conspiracy theories, most of which centred on Boggs' membership of the Warren Commission, which was investigating the assassination of President J.F. Kennedy. Intriguingly, Boggs had dissented from the Commission's majority who supported the single-bullet theory, commenting that he had strong doubts about it. The previous year, Boggs had also made a speech on the floor of the House, strongly attacking the FBI director, J. Edgar Hoover, and the whole of the FBI. A month later, he went even further, stating that, Over the post-war years, we have granted to the elite and secret police within our system vast new powers over the lives and liberties of the people. At the request of the trusted and respected heads of those forces and their appeal to the necessities of national security, we have exempted those grants of power from due accounting and strict surveillance. There is a bound as to why the aircraft went down and why it has never been found, none of which were lessened following the publication of a book by Robert Ludlam the Mattery Circle, in which Ludlam suggests that Boggs was murdered to stop his investigation into the Kennedy assassination. Now, someone else of a rather different ilk also went missing in the wilds of North America. The Flying Bandit was a Canadian criminal with a remarkable record of nefarious deeds. Ken Leishman was born in Holland, Manitoba and grew up in a troubled home. Working as a mechanic, he learned to fly and purchased an old Eronka aircraft, which he used to fly between the farms he visited for work. When the repair company he worked for closed, he decided to make his money in less honourable ways. His first theft was in 1957 in Toronto, when, posing as a friend of a bank manager, he talked his way into the manager's office to supposedly chat about a business loan. Once inside, he produced a gun and used it to persuade the manager to write him a cheque for $10,000. He questioned the poor man about his life and family and then coerced him to 
take him to a teller and cash the cheque, whilst using the knowledge he had gained to appear as his friend. Afterwards, he took the man with him to his getaway car and then let him go. A few months later, he tried the same trick again, but in a different Toronto bank. This manager was made of sterner stuff and refused to go along with Leishman, despite being threatened with the gun. Realising that the game was up, the flying bandit tried to make his escape, but was tripped up by a lady customer and then tackled by a teller less than a block from the bank. He was arrested and sentenced to 12 years. After being released on parole, he tried to make his way as a door-to-door salesman, but with a wife and seven children to support, he soon went back to a life of crime. His next theft was on a much grander scale, when he and four accomplices stole $385,000 of gold bullion worth well over $2.5 million in today's currency from Winnipeg International Airport. In previous years, he used to watch the aircraft at Winnipeg and realised that gold shipments from Red Lake were being flown into the airport to then be taken by Air Canada to the Mint in Ottawa. An accomplice was sent up to Red Lake to watch for a shipment to be prepared, whilst Leishman faked some overalls and acquired a few waybills from an unoccupied Air Canada desk. When a shipment left Red Lake, Leishman and his accomplices stole an Air Canada truck drove onto the tarmac to meet the inbound aircraft and, using the stolen waybills, persuaded the loaders to put the gold onto their truck. Their plan worked like a breeze, and they drove off considerably richer than they had been that morning. They first hid the ingots in a freezer and then a backyard from which they planned to make a further move onto remote farmland, but a blizzard delayed them. The largest gold theft in Canada's history had, however, generated considerable attention from the police. Whilst they were waiting for the legendary blizzard of 1966 to clear, the local force, who were checking up on Leishman's associates, discovered the hall, and before long, the flying bandit was back behind bars, but this time of steel. However, whilst awaiting trial, he managed to escape, along with ten others. Taking a Chevy from the parking lot and with roadblocks going up, he made his way to Steinbach. It was here that he managed to steal an aircraft, fully living up to his nickname, and with his gold-heist crew, he made it across the border into the United States. Leishman was becoming something of a celebrity, so it didn't take long for a barman in Indiana to recognise him and call the police. He was soon being held in the Vaughan Street Jail in Winnipeg, where he managed to pick the lock of his cell, overpower three guards, and escape again over a fence. His final bid for freedom only lasted four hours, and this time he was sentenced to 15 years. He was known to be a charming man and a model prisoner, so only eight years later he was released on parole. He had, however, turned over a new leaf. 
he moved to Red Lake in Ontario, where he became a bush pilot and, with his family, opened up a tourist shop. The couple were, by all accounts, well-liked by the community, and Ken Leishman even served as the chair of the local Chamber of Commerce. However, on December the 14th, 1979, at the age of 48, Ken was performing a medevac flight out of Red Lake when his plane disappeared in northern Ontario. The following spring, a Canadian Forces search flight found the wreckage. The bodies of the patient and medical assistant aboard were positively identified, but all they could find of Leishman was his wallet. Since there was nothing in the wreckage to prove that the flying bandit was dead, the theories abounded as to his whereabouts, especially after the coroner investigating the accident initially listed him as officially alive. Given his colourful past, there has been great interest in his life, and even a documentary, The Flying Bandit, plus a number of books, have added to his notoriety. But to this day, he has never been found. Now, theft may also have been involved in our final story. On the 30th of January 1979, a Varig Boeing 707, flight 967, departed Tokyo bound for Rio de Janeiro in Brazil via Los Angeles. About 120 miles east of Tokyo, whilst flying over the Pacific Ocean, the crew of six suddenly stopped making radio transmissions and all contact with the aircraft was lost. On board the freighter were 53 paintings from the artist Manabu Mabi, which had been in Tokyo for an exhibition and were then worth an estimated 1.24 million US dollars. Despite being relatively close to the coast of Japan, no survivors, bodies or any sign of either the wreckage or the paintings were ever found. The searchers couldn't even find oil or fuel slicks to mark a possible crash site. Despite the art world being suspicious that the paintings might have been stolen, none have ever emerged. This wasn't the only theory, however. May I take you back to the plain tale, Hunting the Foxbat, which I told on November the 11th, 2016. In this story, a disgruntled MiG-25 pilot, Victor Belenko, defects with his aircraft to Japan. The Japanese authorities allowed the United States access to the MiG-25, which was dismantled and inspected, before being crated up and given back to the Soviet Union. However, around 20 parts were claimed to be missing, and some have suggested that these parts were being flown to the USA on board Flight 967 for further analysis. The theory goes that the Soviets intercepted 
and shot down or sabotaged the barrack flight to prevent the parts reaching America. The official report into the loss gives the flight a more likely cause for disappearance and suggests that the crew became unconscious after the aircraft depressurized and, much in the way that Malaysia Flight 370 may have done, it continued on until it finally crashed into the ocean, never to be seen again. Aircraft disappearances always seem to enliven those with vivid imaginations, whereas the actual reason for a disappearance is usually much more mundane. Accidents happen, and the world is a big place. Music by bensounds.com